Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. Cutting your teeth in Hollywood is no easy task, but today's guest moved out from the East Coast by herself, made all her own connections, and has achieved great success. Erica Wernick, the Hollywood success coach, has a thriving coaching business. She's a graphic artist whose work has appeared on many popular network TV shows and movies. She's a blogger, a speaker, and an author. Erica has a great story about what can be accomplished by putting your fears aside and taking the necessary steps to succeed. So today we have with us somebody who is very, very special. She created herself, invented herself out of thin air. She is Hollywood's leading success coach who has helped creatives book work on every major network and on streaming services. Welcome to Street Smart Success, Erica Wernick. Thank you. Your story is um, inspirational because you know, you moved across country, which I'll let you elaborate on, to pretty much um, create a life and a, and a career for yourself, and nobody handed you a thing. And so, where did your life start out? How far back we talking? <laughs> like, I'm 36, so 36 years ago? Or? <laughs> sure. Well, it's, it's funny. I was doing the math last evening, and I came up with 36, so I'm so proud of myself. Oh, wow. Good guess. Yeah. Right on the nose. Pretty much. Well, yeah, sure. Where were you born? Where were you? Where did you grow up? And, you know, yeah, all that stuff. I grew up in a suburb outside of Philly. So I'm from the East Coast, from just a normal, small suburban town, I guess you could say. Yeah, outside of Philly. What town? It's called Fort Washington. Got it. Is this like the iconic mainline Philly or no? Oh, you know a little bit about Philly. A little. Oh, you're dropping, you're dropping some Philly knowledge. <laughs> um, it's funny that you say that because my dad loves to tell people that he grew up on the main line because for people who know nothing about Philly, the main line is like an affluent neighborhood near Philadelphia, near the city. And so my dad always loves to tell people that he grew up on the main line, but I think he grew up on the border. <laughs> um, but uh, no, but where where I grew up is like, 25 minutes from there, not far. I see. I know Philly, not really, not even enough to be dangerous, but we would go, I'm up in Northern California, but my wife is from New Jersey. And so we would go to the Jersey Shore every year. <gasps> Me too. Where? <laughs> We're Jewish, so we go to Margate. <laughs> I'm Jewish and we went to Cape May. Oh, really? That's so funny. Yeah, we, we go to, like, we grew up going to Ventnor and Margate and now Lots of people in my family have houses in, in Margate and Ventnor. I see. Well, as a result of that, so we would always like have like an extra day on the tail end of the trip in Philly because we'd always fly out of Philly. And so our kids were younger and we'd always do like the touristy stuff and um, be on Broad Street. And I really I loved it. And I also love American history. And so mm. um, and, you know, some of the, the suburbs are just absolutely gorgeous. And so it's it's a it's a great town. So you went to Temple, but throughout, let's say, before you went to Temple, and by the way, not Jewish Temple, but Temple, the college, maybe you went Temple to Temple University. <laughs> <laughs> Temple University, yeah. <laughs> 
and you know maybe you went to Temple too, and that would be that would be great too. But um, you're clearly as an adult, like a take charge. You know, you know how to get stuff done. What were you like as a kid? You know, it's so funny that you say that because I, I really struggle to see myself that way, even though I am definitely that way. You know, like in high school, I was the president of our 250 person chorus and I was the secretary of our drama club. You know, I was a total theater nerd, um, but always in leadership roles. And then in college um, at Tyler, I Tyler's the art school at Temple. And I actually went to Penn State before Temple, but I won the leadership award with two of my friends um, in art school. So, you know, it's always funny for me to hear, oh, you're like this take charge leader type of person. And I was, but I never, I never recognized it. I never saw it. You know, I never saw myself as that. Why? I, it's a really good question. Like, I don't know. I just, I think I struggle and, and this has been like, throughout most of my life like I've, I've struggled to see good things I do or the value I bring or you know I don't know I've always just been like this humble person and just I haven't recognized that in myself until recently well Eric Erica we we can turn that into like a marathon discussion <laughs> yes and i am the same way and and i really really want to talk about you but i but i have to insert this is that i was speaking to my son last week he is in his first year of college and he was talking about how well he's doing and he was not boasting cuz that's not the way he is but he was really proud and he was saying to me that dad I got a 3.9 at the high school I went to, Bishop O'Dowd, even though, yes, he's a Jewish kid. And so this is easy for me. In other words, and, and I, hey, I got a 3.9. And I was so happy that he is proud of that as opposed to comparing himself to kids that like got 4.3 and a 4.6 and, you know, mm-hmm. 1,500 SATs because they say when you compare, you despair. And I was so happy that he could own that. And it made me reflect that I can never do the same for myself because mm-hmm. I've been successful, but I always compare myself to people that are way more successful. And so as a result, I, like you, I don't I don't um, see those things in myself and I don't see the value I bring as well. So um, we've probably just bored our listeners to tears. Or <laughs> Oh my gosh, I'm fascinated. I'm like, tell me more. That's so, I mean, that's so incredible of your son. And, and I think it is a really good point to bring up about the comparison thing, because even now, I mean, I struggle with that all the time. And and I think it's a common thing for people to see themselves as less than just in comparison, as opposed to comparing yourself in your own lane to the growth that you've had. I think it is very common. Is it more common than not common? Who knows? But, you know, in, in my case, and I've worked on myself and I've worked on myself, like I've worked on myself too much, right? It's tar- <laughs> t- time to start thinking of other people. But the childhood stuff, which which I'm not going to go into because we're talking about you, the childhood stuff, and I didn't have that bad of a childhood, but, you know, there were circumstances and a result of that and upbringing stuff. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, I, on a very, very unconscious level, there's a big part of me that still suffers with esteem issues, mm-hmm. and I don't think I'll ever get to the top of that. And, you know, I just I just accept it what for what it is, but I'm very fascinated 
appreciate, especially just, you know, we've never spoke. I just know from this point what I've read about you and I've seen how you present. And so just a Mm -hmm. curiosity, it's not incredibly relevant. When you said Penn State, but you didn't go to Penn State in College Station, did you not go to another Penn State? No, I went to Penn State at state in State College. Oh, I'm sorry, State College. I get some so yes. confused. Okay, well, the Happy s- Valley. Yes. Okay, yeah, the same sun. We toured that school, and I was so blown away. It was the most beautiful campus I've ever seen, and he just didn't click, and so we ended up going to Indiana University. So you were a theater nerd. Um, you didn't see yourself or aspire necessarily that that way, but you were a leader, clearly. And so I want to ask you this, um, moving a little bit ahead, is so Erica Wernick Design, which looks like you did for 10 years, um, Mm -hmm. starting in 2008. And so my question is like, did you do web design? Did you do traditional graphic design? What kind of designer exactly were, were you? I designed graphics for television. So when I moved to L.A., I moved for my own Hollywood dream, which was to design graphics for TV and film. And so that's what I did. Okay, And so what does that mean? So does that mean like (laughs) does that mean like the show logo? Like where do you that's what I was confused. Where do you see those graphics if I'm a viewer? Yeah, you're not the first person to ask that. (laughs) I mean, every time I tell people, they're like, what is that? And I didn't know what it was until I knew. So I design graphics that are part of the sets and the props. So if there is a scene in a TV show at a restaurant, I will design the menu. I will design the logo. I will design the sign out front that says the restaurant name. Anything that's that you would see on a TV show or in a movie that would be designed by a graphic designer in real life is what I do. And it's also a lot of covering up um, brands, you know, creating you know, fake brands and things like that when we can't have product placement. So how did you get into that? (laughs) Well, I, like I said, I grew up in theater and singing and acting, and I was always enamored with Hollywood. I did a theater intensive one summer during high school, actually at UCLA in Los Angeles. And I just, I just felt so I felt so attracted to LA as a city, to Hollywood as an industry. I mean, I was always, you know, I grew up singing, so I was definitely interested in Broadway, but I was more pulled towards Hollywood. And when I started designing graphics for the shows that we were in, designing the flyers, I was in charge of like the newsletter for the drama club and things like that. I started to recognize like, oh, I'm really into graphic design. I'm really into this. As my friend would joke with me I would spend like 20 minutes trying to pick out a font (laughs) and she didn't understand uh, my love of fonts and how fascinated I was and so that led me to want to major in design in college and when I graduated I my first interview was actually for a job designing Broadway posters and I didn't get the job but when I was lugging my portfolio around New York City I just, there was something that was telling me, you need to go to LA. Like New York is great, but LA is your place. So um, shortly after that, I discovered what graphic design in TV shows and movies was um, when I was watching 13 Going on 30, which is 
a classic movie for the ladies, um, a great rom-com with Jennifer Garner. And there was a scene in the movie where Jennifer Garner and Mark Ruffalo's character are eating candy called Razzles. And at the time, I did not know that was a real candy. I thought it was fake. And so I was like, oh my gosh, if that's a fake candy, a graphic designer had to have designed that box. How do I do that? Um, And then, of course, I found out that Razzles are real. But the concept of a graphic designer designing it, if it were fake, is exactly what happens in television and film. So I was right about that part. And once I discovered that, I was like, okay, that's what I want to do. I want to move to Hollywood. I want to design graphics and work on TV and film sets. Okay. And so how many people then, I mean, I don't know if you're not going to know an exact number, but how many people then do just graphics for Hollywood? I don't know. I know there's a little over 2,000 people in the Art Directors Guild, which is the union that we have to be in. And that's split between four or five different crafts. So some percentage of 2,000, I don't know. Um, Somewhere between, probably a couple hundred. I don't know. Okay. So you decide to move to LA. And so where did you end up? Like, so you go out there, I am Mm -hmm. assuming you didn't know anybody, but I shouldn't assume that. Where did you live? Was it an apartment? Was it a hotel? How did you get your first job? How did you acclimate? So I basically knew nobody. There were three people in the city that I knew, but did not know well. One went to my high school, but he was in the year below me. One was my dad's cousin who I had only met once because she lived in L.A. for the past 30 years. And so she was never really in Philly. And one was my old an old friend of mine's (laughs) ex-boyfriend who I had met a couple of times. So like it was nobody that I was like super close with. So I didn't really know anybody, although I started cold emailing before I moved. So I started trying to make connections. Um a couple months before I moved. And then a month before I moved to LA, I came out to LA to meet one of my contacts and to show them my portfolio, actually two of them to show them my portfolio. And I was like, okay, I'm moving in a month. I'm just here to, you know, was able to show some people my portfolio. That actually went really well. When I moved a month later, I stayed on the couch of my sister's best friend's sister. (laughs) (laughs) I had never met her before. She doesn't even live in LA anymore now. She was so generous and kind. Like she didn't know me. She was so great. I mean, she was like, make yourself at home. I'm going to go get some in and out. What should I order you? And I was like, in and out. I don't know. Um, And uh, yeah, she, she was amazing, but she was stealing her neighbor's internet she wasn't paying for internet. And you know, when you're new to a city and you need to get a job in an apartment, you kind of need the internet. (laughs) And this was, you know, back in 2008. So things were a little different back then. And so I just remember I had, I'm a graphic designer. So my computer is like a ginormous iMac, you know, I'm not on a little laptop. So I had like my big iMac on the floor in her living room. And the con, one of the contacts I had made from cold emailing gave me like a test project. He was working on a pilot and he asked me to design a logo kind of as a test to see how I did. And I think he paid me, um, but he just wanted to see, you know, was I how I worked and could I do it as fast as they needed in TV and, you know, was it whatever. And so I remember having to send him files, but the internet 
it was so it was like in and out all the time and like I remember in the afternoon for whatever reason the internet was stronger and I was sitting on the floor with this gigantic iMac just trying to make these you know files go through the internet um it was a very stressful scary time but that contact ended up being really great and he got a job offer two weeks later that he was not able to take so he recommended me and I booked that TV show so I booked that first TV show two weeks after I moved okay were you just looking to get gigs from the studios or as opposed to getting a full-time job at that point well one thing that I did not know was how Hollywood worked (laughs) I was so green I did not know anything about the industry. I didn't know what a union was. I just, I knew nothing. And so when I first started cold emailing people, I would say like, how is a graphic designer even hired on these shows? Like, is it a graphic design studio that does these things? Like, I don't understand, it's an agency. And so then that's when I learned like, no, it's not an agency and it's an individual person and you have to get be in the union. And so the idea of like a full-time gig, like that's really just... A season of an, a show. So I guess a seat, like if you get to work on a show for an entire season, that would be considered like a full-time job. Now, obviously, if you work on a show like Grey's Anatomy that goes like 14 years, then you have like a super full-time job. But in TV, nothing is permanent. Kind of like, you know, being an entrepreneur, like the life of a freelancer a little bit, but you, you go from gig to gig, you go from show to show in between seasons, even when you're on hiatus, you might go do a different show or do a movie. Sometimes I would only like get on a show for a couple episodes if they just needed like some extra graphics here and there, that kind of thing. So, you know, over the years I've hired, you know, several freelance graphic designers and I guess you don't have to say what the pay was, but just how was the pay compared to, and maybe, maybe you don't even know because you were so focused on getting into doing, you know, graphics for movies and TV shows. But I mean, how did the studios pay relative if you were doing like for, you know, corporations that weren't in show business as a freelance graphic designer? Well, the union essentially dictates your pay because it's there's a scale rate. And then depending on the budget of the project, you can try to negotiate a higher fee, things like that. Lower budget projects have a lower scale rate, which, you know, I don't do those anymore. Um, because it was a pretty big difference. But the graphic designer's rate is essentially determined by the scale for the union. So I think the scale now is 54, 55 an hour, and you do 10, usually 10 hour days. And so at an hour's nine and 10 or time and a half. Cheap, inexpensive. Yeah, was, yeah like, I mean, it, it was like $500 a day. I, I guess. see. Oh. And then you would also get um, a, a kit rental. So like, they would essentially have to pay you to rent your equipment. So even my fonts or my software or my computer, you know, if they're not providing me with the computer, they essentially have to pay me a kit rental. So then there was usually another kit rental that can be anywhere from like $50 a week to $250 a week, depending. In hearing you talk, and just for clarifications, you know, half clarification and half devil's advocate. In hearing you describe this, it doesn't sound like there's anything like intellectual property that specifically germane to to Hollywood about doing graphic design. Graphic design is graphic design, logo design is logo design. But it seems like they hire a specific person that just does for, you know, just does graphics for the theater. Like, why is that? 
What do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) Nobody's ever asked me that question. What do you mean? Good, good point. I'm I'm doing a terrible job asking the question. That's really what. No, it's good. I'm. I'm. I mean, do you mean like like if I? So when I work on a TV show, it's very rare that I'll design the logo for the show or anything like like anything marketing wise for the show is designed by like usually the in-house studio or their marketing team or whatever. And I did work on one show. I worked on a pilot where I had to design a logo for the show because they needed it just for paperwork and call sheets and just internal stuff, the scripts. And the creator of the show was super interested in having a very specific logo. So I actually spent a lot of time on it. It was hand done. And when the show aired, my damn logo was used in the opening credits and they animated and everything. And like that has never happened before. Like I said, like that is usually from the marketing side. It's a different department. And so like, I don't have IP over that. Like, I don't know if that's what you mean, but like, I'm not getting a residual. I mean, that show ended up getting canceled, but like, I'm not getting a royalty every time that airs or anything. Well, what I meant is not even that relevant. So I, I'm, I'm a little bit even like reticent to pursue it. But I, I, <laughs> okay. I, I guess what I meant is this is so I own an ad agency that I'm not really involved in on a day to day basis, but I own an ad agency. And, you know, back in the day, we would hire graphic designers and we're in a specific category of business. We have a specific kind of client that's in a specific industry. And when I would hire people to do graphic design, it really didn't matter if they had experience in the industry you're not graphic design is graphic design you're given what to go sketch out and you sketch it out and so but yet this seems to be a very specific industry where the studios only use people that just do graphic design for hollywood yes it is i mean you have to get into the union um you have to be a union member it's definitely i mean i think i'm sure most graphic designers might do like side projects or whatever you know in between shows or during hiatus which i've done over the years but um when you work in the industry you are full-time in that you know this particular industry I understand. And you know what? And the reality is, when I think about it, it's it's a really, really, really cool industry, which is why you got into it. You were enamored yes. with it. And, and like, you don't exactly want to do, you know, advertising for, you know, you, you don't want to start doing graphics for like annual reports. Okay. If, you know, that's not exactly. Yeah. Or like, you know, some people from design school would end up doing designs for like pharmaceuticals, you know. TV is so exciting. You know, I've gotten to work on some really cool shows and do really fun, cool graphics. I get to put my name on things. So, you know, in the background, you'll see like Wernick Brewery. You know, it's it's just there's a lot more playfulness to it. And it's a lot more creative. I I understand that. So even though you had Erica Wernick design till 2018, you started the Hollywood success coach in 2016. What drew you to that? What was the progression? Well, and by the way, I still design graphics for TV. Like I usually do a pilot once a year. I I try to keep my IMDb presence. So if somebody looks me up, they see I'm still working in the industry. But when I moved to Hollywood, I had a big dream, just like all the other Hollywood hopefuls, no matter what you're pursuing in Hollywood, whether it's acting, writing, directing, designing, you know, there's so many facets of this industry. And so many people move here with this big dream. And that's what I did. And I found a way to make it happen. I had no pre-existing connections. I didn't know anybody. I didn't even know how the industry worked, you know, and I was able to make it happen. And as the years went by, I would see people around me struggling and I could sort of pick up quickly, like what they needed to do differently. 
or, you know, what they were doing or what they were not doing, you know, how to kind of help them strategically or even, you know, from a mindset perspective of what was blocking them strategically. And then I really started to feel like I need to be helping people. I just felt, you know, when I moved to LA, my cousin gave me Jack Canfield's book, The Success Principles. And it was the first self-development book I had ever read. And so I was just like, oh my gosh, this is the greatest stuff in the world. (laughs) And I remember saying to her like, oh my gosh, more people need to learn this more people like and I and because Jack Canfield was sort of an older gentleman, I I felt like, oh, my gosh, I need to I need to bring this to the younger generation. Like, I, I, you know, I just I had that inspiration, like that seed planted when I moved to L.A. when I was just starting out 12 years ago. So it really like looking back, I can connect the dots now too. you know, like I went to these marketing seminars led by somebody named James Malinchak, and I went to them like eight or nine times over the years in L.A., And I wasn't even an entrepreneur then. I wasn't even like I wasn't doing it was like for authors, speakers and coaches. And I wasn't even doing any of those things. I was designing graphics for television. So the seed to work into coaching and helping people was really planted, like I said, from the beginning and then throughout my years. And then one day I was working on a show and I had some downtime in between graphics waiting for my next assignment. And I'll never forget, I was at Warner Brothers sitting in a bungalow on a show and I had downtime and I was watching a Super Soul Sunday interview of Oprah with Jack Canfield. And I don't even remember what they were saying, but I just felt tears well up in my eyes. And I had this moment of like, Erica, you are supposed to be helping people. What are you doing? It was the strangest thing, you know, it was just felt like this calling, like you need to be helping people. And so ever since that moment, that's when I started shifting more into, okay, well, how can I do this? How can I become a coach? And and I mean, that was a long process, but uh, that's really when it started for me. So what were, if you can recall, what were the success principles? What were like the key takeaway from, from that book? The very first chapter is about taking responsibility 100% in your life. And I just remember reading that chapter and going, oh, crap, <laughs> like, he's right. Like, you know, there, there was something so fascinating, something so eye-opening to take responsibility for everything in your life, but in a good way too, of like, well, if I'm responsible, then I'm also responsible for change and for new things I wanna create and for, you know, just different than now if I don't like now. So that chapter really stood out to me. And then I don't remember all the other principles, but I definitely think that it um, hearing about like one of the things he says is SW, 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 SW. And that stands for some will, some won't. So what? Someone's waiting. And it was talking about that in terms of rejection. And he talked about how the chicken soup for the soul, you know, book had been turned down 144 times by publishers. I think that really jumpstarted me into the cold emailing and into cold contacting and, you know, breaking into Hollywood that way. Like, I think it really empowered me to do that. So I think that that really helped. I think that made a a pretty profound impact. And then another thing that he said that I actually just put in the book that I just wrote that really changed things for me that I just, just like blew my mind. He said that a millionaire is created in the United States every four minutes. And I was like, wait, what? You know, I grew up believing that millionaires were incredibly rare and they're, you know, this unreachable thing. 
and to know that it, it, it like normalized it and it just blew my mind. I was like, oh my gosh, oh, I could be a millionaire if I wanted. Like that just really broke a lot open. You know, I'm, I'm just smiling only because, you know, uh, I would never have guessed that, but I'm just thinking that, you know, like today's billionaire is yesterday's millionaire kind of thing, but mm-hmm. that's, that's neither here nor there. How did you, how did you get your first client? My first TV show? No, no, I'm sorry. Uh, your first coaching, oh, coaching client. Yeah. Coaching. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember. Wait, no, 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 wait. Okay. Wait, I, this is sad. No, I, I remember some of it. So, so part of my journey into recognizing the there's really an entrepreneur inside of me waiting to come out. And, you know, I was on a TV show that was not creatively fulfilling at all. And I was kind of miserable. It was like a cop kind of show. Um, And so all the graphics that I made were just like hospital signs and prison signs and, you know, gray rectangles with text. And I think I was really itching to be creatively stimulated. And I was also simultaneously being flooded with my mom sending me random people's kids that she would meet in the grocery store and you know oh my son wants to move to LA and my mom would be like oh they should talk to Erica so I was constantly being inundated with you know people that wanted to move to LA asking me questions and they always asked the same questions and I was like you know I'm really tired of answering the same thing over and over again what if I put it in a book and so I created a book and it was a really fun design project for myself it was full color and lots of fun images and I don't know it's just a really fun like graphic assignment that I made for myself to create this book called LA Bound the ultimate guide to moving to Los Angeles and I was just like creating it to fill that need I never thought it was necessarily going to lead you know places but people ended up finding me and then I had a podcast about it and um, you know had a blog and all these things and people would start to find me and the book and I started having an email list and I started having people, you know, interested in moving to LA and I sold some other like membership kind of things and other products. And so I think my first coaching client came from the LA bound audience. So how do you get the book? How does one buy it? So I was such a design snob that I couldn't put it on Kindle or make it an ebook or anything because it was full color. I mean, it's like, it's a, it's not a thick book. It's not, you know, I mean, it, I mean, it's a great book and it's helped a lot of people move to LA. From the design standpoint, it was like this beautiful work of art that I created that I couldn't condense to like no graphics or just black and white graphics or whatever. And so I, when I had researched all the different ways to publish this, I was just like, I guess I'm just making a PDF on my website. And so that's what I did. Um, back in 2013, I believe. And so it's still available. I mean, people have bought it from like 11 different countries all over the world now. Hundreds of people have bought this book, which is really cool. And it's, it's just, and I recorded my own audio book as well. There's an audio version um, and I just sell it on the website. You know, that could be, that could be blown. I'm sure you've thought of this, but that could be blown into a whole franchise. I mean, it could be the ultimate guide to moving to San Francisco, to moving mm-hmm. to New York, to moving to Philadelphia, to moving to London, to moving to Japan, you know, whatever. But anyway, I'm sure you've thought about that, how you do it. God only knows. But <laughs> but that but I could see the usefulness of that a lot. 
I mean, because otherwise, you know, yeah, you come out, you don't know who the heck it is. You don't know anybody. Where do you start? So before I forget, and this is a real easy one, where do you live? Now? Yeah. I live in the Hollywood Hills. Just curious. So mm-hmm. and how, how many coaching clients do you have at any given point in time? Well, now I've shifted. I'm not doing as much one-on-one coaching. The one-on-one is really reserved for some like slightly higher level clients, people that are a little further along in the industry. Um, And so I've done a lot more group stuff. But I mean, back in the day, the most I ever had at once was 16. And that was way too many. So now, I mean, I never have more than like four at a time. So yeah, but I think I've coached like somewhere between 50 and 100 by now. What do you charge even when you were more involved? What did you charge per, per session, per month or whatever that looked like? Um, I, well, it's changed a lot over the years as I've gotten more experience and, you know, I've grown more and have shifted the program more too. Now it's a little different. Like when I first started, I think I first charged 3,500 for three months. Um, and now it's 10,000. So it's really changed over the years. I also now also have like a a repertoire, I guess you could say, like I have a whole bunch of courses that help people with things. And so when you do the private coaching with me at the $10,000 level, you're also getting access to like every course I've ever done you can have and you can participate in all the other programs I do. I've done live events too. You get that for free. So um, there's a lot more to offer now. Okay. So you're coaching people in groups. And so how many people uh, are in a typical group? And is that like a, a weekend? Is that like once a week for a period of time? That sounds very interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's changed over the years. Like right now I have a mastermind um, that I actually really love and it's small. It's very small. It's only seven people, but it's been so great. Like I, I'm doing it. It's opening up again tomorrow and I'm going to keep it small again because there's something so nice and intimate about it that they've really gotten a lot out of it. So that's been really nice. Like I've done other things where there's more like I have a I have another membership where we've had like 20 to 30 people in at a time. So it varies. My live events are usually between 50 and 100 people. But the intimate mastermind that I've done that I'm doing now has been been really nice, been really great. So when you say live events, is that a one day or is it two or three days? And and is it then a, a system that you have created? And what are the live events? Yeah, I've I've experimented with different ways, you know, like I I've so now I've done two, I believe, two live events that were called Hollywood Success Live. And it was just one day, but it was almost all day. It was like five hours, maybe Um, really cool locations where like there's a view like the last one was like you could see the Hollywood sign. We were on the roof. It was really cool. And it went through it like my entire system. Uh, There was a book that we went through and it was very interactive. It was more like workshop kind of thing. And it was so great. Like it was so much fun. We had, we did a step and repeat. We had to make it Hollywood, you know, do a little red carpet, step and repeat. And um, it was just so much fun. But then the last event that I did, I was like, you know, I kind of want to do something that's less work because it was so much work to do that and so much prep that the last one I did was really cool. It was very different. It was just two hours. It was at Warner Brothers in one of their private theaters. And it was just on one topic. So very different, but I got really good response from both of them, but very different experiences. You said that you have prior to that, the one day live Hollywood success, you would um, 
deploy your entire system. So how do you describe the entire system? Well, it's in my book. So if anyone is interested in pursuing a dream, and by the way, the book isn't even just for Hollywood, it's for anyone with a big dream in their heart. It's called Meant for This. It's like whatever I would do with my private clients, what I would take them through, I was able to sort of translate into a system. So like in the very, like it first starts out with getting very clear on what you desire. Like what are your goals from the immediate to the really grand? And it's a really interesting process that people go through because you think like, oh, actors that move to Hollywood, you know, and want to work in television and film, they all want to, you know, have an Oscar and things like that. And while many of them do, most of them are too afraid to say it out loud. So we do spend some time in the beginning being like, okay, if you were not afraid of judgment, if you did not fear judgment and this is a safe space, you know, what do you really actually want? Because, you know, we have to know what we're going for because people will be too afraid to say what they actually desire out loud. You know, they're afraid people are going to laugh at them or say like, oh, yeah, I want to win the lottery, too. You know, people judge them for these grand dreams that they have, and then they don't actually go after them in a strategic manner because they're too embarrassed. So first we get really clear on what it is they desire. And then I have them go through what are the fears that you have that are attached to these desires? So now that we wrote out a whole list of all of these things that you desire as however big they are, you want a $10 million paycheck, you want an Oscar, you want an Emmy. I have people telling me they want EGOT. They want the Emmy, Grammy, Tony, and um, Oscar. You know, we write it all out. And then I have them look at it and say, okay, what fears and doubts come up for you when you look at that list? Because what I found with people in Hollywood is so much of the struggle really has nothing to do with the strategic, even though we do work on that a lot. And that's the second part of the system. So much of it is that their fears and their doubts about what they're pursuing and what they want get in the way of them actually taking the strategic steps. So we really go through and say, like, what narrative is controlling your mind right now in terms of these big dreams that you have? Like, why aren't you going after them in that way? Let's uncover that so that we can change the story. Let's change the belief system that you currently have that's blocking you from going after those things. And then once we do that and they create affirmations from their fears and everything, um, then we move into the strategy portion and I walk them through how to build you know, a strategy that's more focused on the Oscar or on the bigger things that they desire. I thought you were going to say something different. Um, <laughs> what did you think I was going to say? <laughs> well, no, no, no. I, I, I get everything you said. I, I, I totally get it. I understand. No, about this point. And maybe it's this. When you said the fear is a doubt about what they're pursuing. And I guess what I thought was that more like they would be clear about what they're, they didn't doubt what they were pursuing, but they would just be afraid that they personally could achieve it. That's what I thought you were going to say. But my understanding is that they're doubting that they're, that should even be their pursuit in the first place. Oh, they definitely like they definitely doubt themselves, too. And <laughs> they definitely also doubt, you know, their potential. And is this possible for them? And, you know, maybe it's possible for someone else, but not for them. Or am I worthy of this? And there's a lot, you know, the worthiness piece is actually huge. And we do a lot of work around that. But it's like, before we even get to, am I worthy of these things? It's like, can you even admit out loud that you want these things? I see. Well, I wonder if the reason somebody can't admit it out loud is because they're afraid they can't achieve it. And if they admit it out loud, it commits them to having to try it. 
Totally. And, you know, it is like that cycle, that catch 22, because if they meet, you know, a lot of the fear is fear of judgment, because if they've said it out loud, like I always say, people always laugh or cry in that moment because they laugh because they're afraid that I'm going to say that's crazy, you know, because that's the usual response that they're that they get is that people tell them, oh, you want to win an Oscar like that's crazy. That's really difficult. Um, Or they cry because no one has ever held the space for them to even like admit it to themselves. And so I think, but it is that catch 22 of like, well, why are you triggered if somebody laughs or somebody passes judgment or says how difficult your goal is going to be? It's like, we feel triggered because we feel insecure that they're right, that we can't do it. So if I think back to where you and I started this conversation, you were a theater nerd, as you described yourself. Uh, you were, was it the president of your choir? <laughs> yes. You're the president of your choir. Sorry for my bad memory. Um, no, and, you're doing great. I'm impressed. And though so I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to pay attention, but I'm just like following the progression. And then you clearly spent the bulk, have spent the bulk of your time as, as a graphic designer. I get all that. Moved out, didn't know anybody. Read the Jack Canfield book. Uh, exposed yourself to other let's call it professional development stuff. But what mm-hmm. you're describing is like really verges so much more in, in my interpretation around psychology. Mm-hmm. And and I'm just wondering, like, you know, fill the gap for me, because it sounds like you're unbelievably empathetic and, and this transcends just, you know, chicken soup stuff, or maybe it doesn't. But So how did you turn into somebody with all this incredible wisdom? Oh, you're very kind. You know, it's, it's interesting because I am fascinated by the psychology of it. I'm fascinated by the energy and the mindset behind people's decisions. And I'm also really fired up about strategy. And so we'll do both in a session where we we do the mindset work first and then we'll dive into, I, I really feel like I'm pretty good at the strategy piece too, helping them. But I think that like where it comes from, I mean, it's really a good question. I remember when I started to see people around me struggling in Hollywood, I could tell that it was not connected to the strategy and it was connected to their mindset. And they were making decisions based on their beliefs that were not supporting their dreams. And I picked up on that, I think, from all of the work that I did reading Jack's book and going to that seminar so many times. And I just was very fascinated in the coaching world. And then, of course, when I started coaching, I had my own coaches every single year, you know, so I was doing my own deep work. You know, they say that you can't help somebody with work that you haven't done yourself. So I think that it started with me doing that work myself that I was then able to see it in others. But I would see like an actor who had a dream of acting, but then they would get themselves a nine to five job at a production company, therefore never being able to go on auditions because auditions happen during the day. And so I would see that and I would see like, you know, so then they would come up with the story of like, oh, see, it's so hard to make it in Hollywood. Like I'm not moving forward with my acting career. And it's like, well, of course you're not. You have a nine to five job. You've made a decision that isn't supporting the dream. And so there's got to be some fear under there that is controlling that decision making you know where is that decision coming from it has to be coming from a belief that you don't think you can do this or you don't think you're good enough or you're pretty enough or you're capable or that it's possible you know all of those things so i started to 
pick up on it, but I guess it's because of the work that I had done on myself. I mean, once I read that Jack Canfield book, I was just a sucker for self-development. So I really did a lot of work on myself and still do to this day, every day. (laughs) 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 It's a never-ending, you know, education. (laughs) You're telling no about the floods. I I understand 100%. So in hearing you describe it, I guess, what percentage of people that you're working with now then, because you you talk broadly, you know, of Hollywood, what percentage of people are actors, actresses that you're working with? So usually about 80%. And it's funny because when I first started coaching, I said to my coach, well, what if an actor, like, I can't help an actor. You know, I I wasn't an actor. What? How am I going to help an actor? And I just like, I bought into the same limiting beliefs that actors have, like that, you know, that acting is one of the hardest things to do in Hollywood. It's so much harder than anything else. And like, I just bought into all of that and I just doubted myself and what I could do. And then you know, over the years, I mean, most of my clients have been actors. But what's really cool about, I think, about my company and what we do is that we don't just work with actors. So, for example, in my mastermind, we have two directors, we have a writer, we have a first AD. And it's really cool to get that variety so that they can help each other, they can support each other, they can see different perspectives in the industry. I mean, it's been really beneficial to my clients to be able to be surrounded by other professions in Hollywood other than just actors or just people who are like them. That that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I, I was just thinking, too, that I could see it's like people that go, for example, well, you know what? I'm going to become an accountant. Well, most of those people are probably like they're not really that afraid of doing it because the chances are if you get a CPA, you will become an accountant. But with <laughs> actors, I could see that fear because it's like the reality is, I mean, the percentages are very, very slim. Yes. Uh, so I totally get that. And I think what you are doing is absolutely phenomenal um, in addressing that. And, and you know what I get just overall is even though you took it upon yourself to kind of learn a lot of in an educational way, professional development. I'm hearing that you're a highly intuitive person, just the way you were put on this earth. That's what I'm getting from you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I've really leaned into that in the past two or three years for sure. And I think that is part of it. You know, when I think when my clients come to me with, you know, a struggle or, or something that they need help with, I feel like I do somewhat quickly pick up on what they need to hear or what is the block is going on, you know, maybe something that they can't see. And so I I really have. I I mean, I've actually done a lot of education in that world as well. I've taken a class on intuition. I'm certified in angel tarot card readings. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of education in that as well. So when you said you're still working on yourself every day, what are you Mm -hmm. working on right now? Oh my gosh, what am I not working on? Um, So much. I mean, my work looks different day to day, but I think that, and the same thing with my clients, it's like every new thing that you desire. My mastermind is called Level Up, you know, we're focused on the quote unquote, your next level. Like every new level, every new thing that you desire is going to require you to become the person that succeeds at that level or has what that is that you desire. And there's a reason why you don't have it yet. There's a reason why you're not there yet. You know, you're not identifying as that person yet. A lot of the work that I'm doing is whatever my next level is, you know, the next things that I desire is like, how can I become that person? How and and that work goes into, well, what are my own 
self-doubts about being that person? What are my own beliefs or stories that I have about why I can't be that person or why I'm not there yet or whatever? So a lot of my work is really going deep and facing all of those things that are coming up for me because I think that at every new level, new things will come up. And, you know, the way in which I do that looks different every day. Sometimes it's journaling. Sometimes it's, you know, working with a coach. Sometimes it's listening to things on YouTube like Abraham Hicks or reading books. I'm super into Dr. Joe Dispenza's work. So it looks different every day, but it is a lot of journaling and and also conversation, talking it out. So for you, what is the next level of success? Well, I wrote this book and this book is like a big deal for me because it's branching out beyond Hollywood. You know, this book is not just for people in Hollywood. It's really geared towards artists in general and it's called Meant for This. So it's really for anyone who has a dream they feel meant for. It's like a self-help book, except that it's different than an entrepreneur book because I do feel that being an artist or wanting to be a star not even necessarily as an actor, but just, you know, really living in that star energy is different than being an entrepreneur. So for me next is like, I'm working on trying to get this book published. I'm working on getting press, like really putting myself out there even beyond Hollywood. And then also, you know, one of my dreams is also to be working with even higher level people in Hollywood and really be, you know, working with people at a high level in this industry, because I also desire to help be part of the change in the industry that we need to see, you know, in terms of inclusivity and diversity. And, you know, I want to be working with the people that want to put out positive content. I'm developing a TV show off of the book with a good friend of mine who happens to be an uh, Emmy nominated director. And it's, it's really exciting. It's really exciting to develop this show based off of my teachings and based off of this book, but make it available for everybody. That's really, I think my next level is like this TV show and this book and growing, but so much of it is like being, allowing myself to be recognized and to be serving in in a bigger way. I think that that is a perfect answer and a perfect vision. I have expired the amount of questions and uh, (laughs) where, where, tell me what is your website? Where do people find meant for this and tell us how to engage with you? Thank you. You remember, Roger. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My website is hollywoodsuccesscoach.com. I'm on Instagram a lot at hollywoodsuccesscoach. And the book is on the website. You can also get there from meantforthisbook.com. I printed a first run of 100 books really for a marketing project that I'm working on getting the book out to celebrities. But I sold a handful of them And it'll be like the first limited edition run. But that's like the book isn't published yet. Like I'm still working on getting traditionally published. So it's just I just printed that run to start getting some testimonials and get more buzz for it and see to get more marketing and more reach. But in the meantime, you can sign up for the wait list, which is a really great thing to do, because when you sign up for the wait list, you can get the first chapter for free immediately. And there's also a really cool audio that I recorded that you can get for free. That's like a it's a motivational speech set to music called meant for this to get you just jazzed up in the morning and really feel empowered to go after your dreams. So, yeah, that's where you can find me. That's where we can find Erica Warnick. Erica, thank you so much for joining me. I've absolutely loved this entire conversation, so I can't thank you enough. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed your questions. Absolutely. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye. 
Street Smart Success.